Hey, it's Chris Garlock. Elise and I are working on several new shows that will be coming out in the next few weeks. But in the meantime, we're very pleased to bring you a special show today that's appropriate for this Thanksgiving weekend. The 1960 documentary Harvest of Shame, presented by legendary broadcast journalist Edward R. Murrow on CBS, was revolutionary in its raw portrayal of poverty amongst migrant farm workers. Originally aired just after Thanksgiving Day in November 1960, it was the first time millions of Americans were given a close look at what it means to live in poverty on their televisions. On today's show from the WBAI radio show Building Bridges, produced by Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg, Jessica Garcia, RWDSU farm labor organizer, and David Disagard Kalik, director of the Immigration Research Initiative at the Economic Policy Institute, discuss the film's legacy and the state of farm workers today. They train a spotlight on the low pay and poor working conditions endured by the people who help bring America's food to the table. And union organizing, always a challenge in the agricultural sector, while making some recent triumphs even sweeter. Here's Building Bridges and Harvest of Shame. I'm Ken Nash. And we're Building Bridges. We're going to turn to a story about a documentary that changed the way the nation talks about poverty. In 1960, the legendary journalist Edward R. Murrow focused on the lives of migrant farm workers in the documentary Harvest of Shame. Now, Edward R. Murrow. This is CBS Reports. Harvest of shame. It has to do with the men, women, and children who harvest the crops in this country of ours, the best-fed nation on earth. These are the forgotten people, the underprotected, the undereducated, the underclothed, the underfed. We present this report of Thanksgiving because were it not for the labor of the people you are going to meet, you might not starve but your table would not be laden with the luxuries that we have all come to regard as essentials. We should like you to meet some of your fellow citizens who harvest the food for the best-fed nation on Earth. David Lowe talks to Mrs. Doby, 34 years old, mother of nine children. Mrs. Doby, what things do you pick up north? 
We pick strawberries and cherries. Who works with you out of this family here? Everybody except the baby. Who takes care of them in the field? Well, they just kind of stay along with us or take care of themselves. The one that can't walk usually stays in the baby buggy. What is an average dinner for the family? You mean, what do we have in... Yes. Well, I cook a pot of beans and fry some potatoes or some corn or something like that. How many quarts of milk do you buy for the children? Well, we don't have milk except maybe when we draw our paycheck, we have milk about once a week. For all these children, you have the milk? The baby has, uh, she is on the bottle, and she uses about 15 cans of milk a week. But the older children have milk about once a week. Do they like to drink milk, Mrs. Dillon? Yes, they like milk. The only reason I asked that question, I was quite shocked that they had milk only once a week. Just thought they didn't like it, but they, they like milk, but it's, well, there's so many, it, a gallon of milk will make them a glass around, and so we just can't afford it every day. What do you want most for your children, Mrs. Doby? Well, I'd like for them to have a career, whatever they'd want to be. When they got older, of course, the smaller ones, they've not don't realize yet to know what they'd like to be. But the, old, the older girl, she'd like to go to school if she could, because she'd probably be like the boy, have to quit as soon as she's old enough. She really likes to go to school, but she had to miss last week because she had to keep the baby for me to work. Mrs. Doby, wouldn't you ever care to have a house of your own? I'd like to have a house if we plan to buy one if we could ever get enough to pay down on one, we'd buy one. Do you think this will ever happen? Well, it don't seem like it. You've been listening to a clip from journalist Edward R. Murrow's Harvest of Shame. Harvest of Shame trained a spotlight on the low pay and poor conditions endured by the people who helped bring America's food to the table. Now, Harvest of Shame, farm workers struggle with poverty 60 years on. Jessica Garcia, farm labor organizer with the RWDSU, and David Disagard Kalik, director of the Immigration Research Initiative at the Economic Policy Institute. The documentary Harvest of Shame was revolutionary in its raw portrayal of poverty amongst migrant farm workers, immigrant farm workers. Now, your thoughts on the film's legacy and the state of farm workers today, and why don't we begin with Jessica, and thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Mimi, and thank you, Ken, for for having us. It's a a pleasure to join you and and talk about the work that we're doing uh, to lift up the rights of farm workers. For in my case, in New York State in particular, I will just say that despite the strides that were made decades ago, in, particularly in California, to lift up the plight of farm workers, the reality is that the industry is uses uh, mainly immigrant labor, brown, black, people of color, to do this work. And in so doing, um, they continue to devalue it. We have had um, in our country... Since the 1940s uh, or since the 1930s, uh, farm workers excluded from uh, basic labor laws in the country that would give them the right to overtime pay, to minimum wage standards, to access to 
so many benefits that workers today have have that and don't even think about because that they're just guaranteed. Uh, and farm workers, for the longest time in New York, didn't have that. A pivotal moment for for us here in New York was in 2019 when we signed into law a um, uh, the right for farm workers to organize into a union that and also gave them the right to overtime pay after 60 hours of work in a work week and access to workers' comp, a, uh, a day of rest. Um, imagine uh, workers not having the uh, the ability, the right to even rest, particularly in, in such a grueling um, line of work as, as farm work uh, that requires them to, to be out in the field for, for hours. Anyway, so the, the legislation uh, and the law now grants them a lot of work, but the reality is that we have, you know, upwards of, of 60,000 uh, farm workers in New York who uh, who don't know these newly gained rights. Um, and so when we visit farms, uh, a lot of the work that we do is to give them the basic education of these hard-fought uh, rights that they now have um, and allow them to, to see that actually they, they can demand a day of rest. Um, they have that right. Um, they they should be able to spend that time with their family. Um, and they, they, they are worthy of, of more. Um, and so... Uh, today, at least in our work, what we're fighting for in, in many ways is for dignity, for respect, um, and to to elevate the the work of farm workers to to, to to for us to really recognize just how how essential they really are both to our economy, to our communities, uh, and acknowledge that they're they're an integral part of of the fabric of our society. And David, your thoughts on the same question: How did farm workers, how are farm farm workers faring today, and how is this brought about by the legislation in the 30s excluded them from many labor laws. Well, right. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, harvest of, of shame is a is a great title. Unfortunately, still, um, I think right. The the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act are the two main laws that protect the right to form and join a union and and protect your wage and hours that pretty much everybody else in the country enjoys from the beginning excluded farm workers. And uh, in fact, there are really only two categories of workers that were excluded systematically from, from those rights. It was farm workers and domestic workers. The majority of the workers at that time were African-Americans. Um, at this time, you know, it's, it's primarily immigrants working in, in, in farm labor. And as Jessica says, they're, they're still fighting just to be able to make ends meet and, and have some basic dignity in their, in their work. I wonder if both of you can talk about, before we get to some of the advances that have been made, which are admirable on the part of the immigrant, migrant, farm laborers who have been struggling, as well as the organizers, such as Jessica from the RWDSU. But before we even hit that, I still think it's important to paint a picture about, really, how far have we come and what are the greatest hindrances since Harvest of Shame, 60 years and counting now? Could we still hear the same interview with a woman saying that she couldn't uh, give her children milk on a regular basis because it's simply not affordable. If you can name some of the names of the the growers and legislators who continue those policies that have brought such shame on the conditions and benefits that should inure to to the farm worker. Dave, why don't we start with you this time and then 
circle back to Jessica. Sure. Well, I do think we've made some advances. I mean, poverty is the, the anti-poverty programs that have been put in place by and by and large, they, they work. I feel like there's not enough appreciation for that and we need to do more. There's so far to go still. I mean, I was listening to the clip that you had and thinking about child labor is so striking. In many states, it's it's not legal. But like, for example, in North Carolina, I was just uh, talking with somebody talking about how children as young as 12 years old um, and sometimes even 10 years old can work in the fields. And I'm sorry, in North Carolina, not what it once was, but it's it's still pretty stark, I would say. Jessica? The day-to-day lives of, of farm workers continues to be challenging. Many come come to this country originally and, and choose to stay because they are looking for a better a better life for the, for themselves and for their families. And the reality is that when they come here, they end up with jobs that keep them in the field for six, seven days a week or, like I mentioned before, very long hours, uh, which means that they can't spend a lot of time with their families. They do struggle to uh, to put food on the table, but not in the in the starvation way. Uh, at least not in New York, um, because we do have uh, public programs, but also because they 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 somehow manage to put enough to scrape enough together to, to feed their families, to clothe their families. But they're you know they don't have the freedom, the luxury of spending uh, funds on on things that are not are not budgeted for, or the luxury of planning a vacation, or the luxury of uh, or even of, you know, new clothes for, for the school year, uh, things that traditionally, you know, people get used to here in, in the U.S. And so it's, uh, and, you know, rem- remember that these are, by and large, largely uh, Im- immigrant uh, workers who, who come and, and devote themselves to this work, and so they're sending money back home as well. Um, they're really taking care of more than one family in that in that respect. Um, the one issue that I think is, is really uh, visually disturbing is is really the housing situation for farm workers and and that's where they they don't have a lot of control over their housing uh, particularly when it's employer provided uh, which is often the the part of the deal um, that that they make with employers when they, when they go to go to work for them um, and and we do have a, a two-tiered system in the u.s with guest workers those who come in through h2a visas um, having some set of standards for their housing and those workers who are here permanently year-round who aren't H-2A uh, visa workers, um, their housing is, is, is set to a different standard based on the state. And so you will see if you drive around um, and look look at farms and the housing housing for those farm workers, you'll, you'll see that it's very depressing and uh, it, it doesn't merit some attention. And, and the workers and their families should be able to live in dignity in these, uh, in these farms, and, and often they don't. I heard you say the word dignity, and I, both you, Jessica, and Dave have dealt largely with the material conditions, which are of critical importance. What about the issue of dignity? What about the issue of the environmental hazards? What about the issues of how women are treated, uh, how uh, the racism and xenophobia that exists? How are people also affected and or protected at all in that way as, as as farm workers who have almost no legislative protections. It's an area of a, lot, of a lot of work. Workers are exposed to pesticides, to chemicals. They need to be educated on what it, what it is that they're handling uh, and ensuring that they're they're handling it pro- appropriately. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, work, if workers aren't made aware that they're handling dangerous chemicals, 
they're working under pressure to just get the job done. And so they will go ahead and just get the job done and not put their safety first, not because they don't want to, but because they're, they don't really feel like they have a choice. When it comes to you know, exposure to, to heat stress, working under extreme temperatures, that's also a really big concern. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't had an, an, OSHA, an uh, OSHA agency that had the power to, to really uh, push a heat standard, extreme temperature standard in, in, recent, in you know, the recent past. Uh, hopefully with new, this new administration, we, we can get something in the books to protect workers from uh, those environmental concerns, which are only getting worse with, with climate change. And as you mentioned, being a woman in the fields is not a very safe thing. Um, there is sexual harassment out there. There are there are risks that women take being out and in, in, uh, doing this work. And we do need to find ways of, of making sure that uh, when they when they do this work, that they can do so free of free of harassment, free of fear of, of being accosted while they're doing their job. Not to go on, but you know, dignity is also uh, about being treated like every other worker. Farm workers are acutely aware of how different they are seen and treated by employers than other hourly workers or salaried workers. Um, I can say for the vineyards that we're organizing, we have the agriculture workers out in the field, and they are very aware of the staff that's in the tasting room that are not considered agriculture workers who have overtime pay after 40 hours, who get sick days, who get paid family leave, who get um, all of these things that they don't see available to them day to day and don't they don't feel like they can access because of the demands of their job. Uh, and to them, that's dignity, the fact that they can't be, they can't, they're not, they're not being given that equal access to all those benefits um, and may not even have all those benefits. David, you've been reporting on and organizing around a campaign throughout the country, throughout the country, actually, to give time and a half overtime pay to people working over 40 hours. It's much worse than that in many states right now. Could you talk about that? So uh, New York just won a 40-hour overtime threshold, which is exciting. It gets phased in very gradually, so it'll be 10 years before it's fully phased in. But it just recognizes that farm workers are you know, as Jessica said, they're like other workers. They want to be treated like other workers, and they, there's no reason they shouldn't be. So if they're going to be working very long hours, which they sometimes will have to, they will end up also work, getting paid time and a half overtime. It's a it's a sadly rare thing. I mean, there's only one, only one state in the South, Maryland, um, has an overtime rule for farm workers, and that starts at 60 hours a week. So, I mean, picture you're working... 10 hours a day, let's say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, 10 hours a day. And then if you're going to work more than that, you get paid time and a half overtime. You know, that's, and that's a state where they do have uh, an overtime rule. Many states don't. California is the only state that at this point currently has a 40-hour threshold already. Um, there are three other states that are phasing it in gradually. And uh, it's it's just, I think... Kind of what we, what the rest of us assume is part of working in a job where you get paid on an hourly basis is if you work overtime, you get paid for overtime. It's gradually starting to happen in the farm worker world. 
Dave, if you can uh, take us from the 1930s, if you can take us from the plantation owners and the southern Dixocrats and so on who did not want domestic workers, who did not want farm workers built into the National Labor Relations Act and so on, what now? And, and Jessica, if, if, if you're working around particular growers and stuff, who are? Uh, creating the roadblocks. What is creating the roadblocks? Is it really is is who? Is it legislators that uh, are, are refusing to do better? And I'm not looking at it as as a negative that it takes ten years to phase in. But good gracious, ten years to phase in. But who are the legislators that are the roadblocks? Who are the growers that are so backward? and recalcitrant in dealing with the unionization efforts and the organizing for rights and benefits of those people who put the food on our table. Can we name some of them? Well, at the top of my mind, I don't know, Jessica, if you want to say, but I mean, at the top of my mind would be the the Farm Bureau has taken a very strong uh, kind of, you know, extreme position in my my view of opposing any sort of regulations like this at all, um, even when there are, uh, I mean, in New York State, you, we, we now have um, tax credits that will pay for 100% of the of the cost of the farmers, um, you know, gradual phase in. And I, I will also say, you know, I think it's, to my mind, short-sighted for them. I think it's in the interest, I mean, this is, of course, most of all important for workers, and we need to treat every, everybody with, a, with, with dignity and fairness. But it's also important for the long-term success of these farms that they figure out how to be able to pay a decent wage so that they can be more sustainable in the future. And we've seen, for example, in California, um, where they've already had the, um, you know, they've now already had the uh, uh, 40-hour overtime for for a short while. You know, the the, the fear was, or the, the claim from the farm bureaus was that the sky would fall, farms would be gone. Nobody would be working there anymore. And, of course, that hasn't happened. In fact, you know, basically the farms have adjusted just fine. The same thing was true in New York, where uh, they first implemented a 60-hour overtime. And farms adjusted in very much the way we would have expected, which is to say also becoming more efficient and, um, you know, being able to work better. And, Jessica, you want to talk about the organizing work that's being done in organizing workers into unions and recalcitrance of the employers, especially in retaliating to workers for organizing. And let's name those names so that when we go to the grocery, we can uh, think about whom to put pressure on. Every, every farm owner in the industry is opposed to all of these things. It, it seems, um, you, you know, if they own it, if they run it, you know that they're against it, all of these all of these. Um, uh, all of the all of the issues that we're trying to address here, um, and you know, for them, this, this, this the institution works as is. Um, there are very few and far be- between farm owners who recognize that we need to change conditions in in in, uh, in the farms and that we need to give farm workers more rights and more protections. Um, however, I will say that for us um, at the RWDSU, there is one unionizing campaign that could really use some community support. Um, and that is our, our our bargaining campaign at Tinder Vineyards, uh, located in, in Suffolk County in Long Island. Um, workers there um, elected to join a union over a year ago, and they have been trying to bargain with the the farm uh, the farm owners there 
um, for that long um, and have yet to succeed in closing in on this on this contract. Um, and honestly, it's um, it's astounding to us um, that we can't come to an agreement um, at this point. The workers are um, are fed up, uh, and if we can have um, you know consumers, individuals uh, send a message to Pindar Vineyards um, that they should be bargaining in good faith and bargaining with the workers. Uh, and not buy that Long Island wine from Pindar Vineyards um, if you know you so choose. Um, that would be that would be really helpful. And how do we do that? How do you do that? Is there a um, website? Is there a number to call? There is a number to call. Well, we're um, going to let you find that in a second and come back as we wrap up. Uh, but we want to uh, say kudos to uh, the increase in uh, and, and attention to overtime. So let's just go out on that good note that the blood, sweat, and tears of the farm workers have led to at least now in New York State, and we've got to now spread that out to the other states. Dave, just give us that summation again of what was won. What was one was uh, six, was was overtime pay after 40 hours uh, a week for farm workers, plus building on the, the victory in 2019 to allow farm workers to to join a union. Um, and if I could just say, I mean, I think we we value farms. Small farms are really important to communities, and uh, even a lot of big agriculture, there needs to be improvements. But it's important to our food chain. But just as we value farms. We have to also value farm workers, and it's part of the ecosystem. It's part of the economy. Jessica? And I have that number. Uh, yep, I, I <laughs> Good have for that you. Number. Say it if twice and say it slowly. Thank you. Uh, please call Pindar at 631-734-6200, extension 104, and let the owners know that they should be negotiating uh, with uh, with workers for a fair contract. The say number that- again is 631 734 6200-104. Good. And we'll bring some of the farm workers on themselves next time to talk about that campaign. And we want to thank and let people know that for more information on what David disagod Kellick, Director of Immigration Research Initiative at the Economic Policy Institute, well, you can go to the EPI website. Oh, I- yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I have to tell you, we're not part of Economic Policy Institute, so we work closely with them. There, there are co-authors on some of the papers, but it's Immigration Research Initiative. I thank you for that correction, and do go to that website and pull up the reports. And remember, as we think about the food that's put on our table, or we should, the labor that goes into it, the blood, sweat, and tears, and support our farm workers. Jessica Garcia, labor organizer with RWDSU, great friend David Disagard Kalik, director of the Immigration Research Initiative. Thank you so very, very, very much. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. And I'm Ken Nash. And we're saying educate, agitate, and organize for another world is possible if we work real hard and have the tools to make it so. Thanks for listening.